the group are over uh, enjoying their time in Israel. One of the things I really enjoy about the Christian life is that things are not always the way they seem. You and I have a tendency to trust ourselves more than anything. We trust what our eyes can see and what our minds can understand and evaluate. But when it comes to the experience of suffering, as we've been talking about in our study in the book of Job, uh, what our minds see and what our, or what our minds understand and what our eyes can see doesn't always compute, doesn't always add up the way that we think it should. And so when we come to a place of suffering as Christians, we need to trust that there is more going on than what we can see or understand. And really, as you think about the Christian life more generally, this is how we should live every day. Uh, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. And he actually said that in the context of talking about his own suffering. Uh, a chapter before that, in chapter 4, he said, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So when we encounter suffering, when our faith wavers, and when the world around us leads us down a path to despair, we need to look to Jesus, who we can't see bodily. Uh, he's not here with us. He's ascended in heaven. But we look through the eyes of faith as we come to the Bible, and what we see in the Bible paints a picture of who Jesus is and what his suffering accomplished. Because if we know that Jesus' suffering was meaningful, then we can be certain to some measure that as Christians, as his followers, that our suffering is meaningful as well. We may not be able to see that meaning in our day-to-day -day lives, and as Pastor Doug noted last week, for those who are here, just if you knew the meaning of your suffering, that wouldn't necessarily take the pain away. But knowing that our suffering is meaningful enables us to endure in a way that we otherwise couldn't. And so if you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, the passage that Brother Tim read a few minutes ago, that'll be our text for this morning. And even though this is a prediction of Jesus' suffering on the cross, I think we see a glimpse of the meaning of his suffering in this song or poem. Uh, just to give a bit of the context, this was a poem that was written to suffering people. Really the whole, uh, from chapter 40 onward in the book of Isaiah, he's writing to a people who have been displaced from their homeland. Uh, they've been enslaved in captivity. And so he's writing to give them hope that God is going to come through on his promises. So this uh, poem or song is divided into five stanzas. And as we go through each one, I hope that you'll see that the main theme is not suffering, but success. And we'll look at that uh, as we get into the passage. So I'm going to read each stanza separately as we go through, and then we'll talk about each one individually. So beginning with Isaiah, actually chapter 52, uh, in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there are many who are appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. 
For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. That's our first stanza of the five in this song. And I've titled this stanza, The Successful Servant. Now, you may not see it readily in that text, but when it says, my servant will act wisely, uh, a more literal translation of that is, my servant will be successful. And you can see the overlap. Wisdom is just the knowledge and skill necessary to succeed. So if we elaborated that one Hebrew word, we could get, my servant will have the knowledge and skill necessary to succeed. And as you look through the rest of this passage, which we'll get to in a moment, that's really the main theme of what goes on. The difficulty in this passage is to see how the servant is going to succeed. We know from the New Testament that this servant is Jesus himself. And we get a glimpse of that even again in verse 13, where his success is paralleled with praise. It says he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Now that phrase appears a couple of other times, most notably in Isaiah in chapter 6. And those of you who know your Bibles well, you'll know that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a vision of the heavenly throne room. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. And he can barely stand to look at it. And so we know uh, from this passage that the servant, having that same description of God himself, we know that the servant also is divine. And for those of you who may not be super familiar with Christianity, uh, Christians believe that Jesus is God. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just an example for us to follow. He is God in the flesh, unique among any other person who has ever lived. And so our devotion to him is to his person. He's our God. And so when we think about what it means to worship as a Christian, it's not just about attending church. It's not just about reading our Bibles or praying or doing good deeds. But it's mainly about our devotion to Jesus as Lord, as our God. And that's going to become really key as we understand why uh, going throughout the rest of this passage. But there's a bit of mystery here. This servant who is going to succeed, if he is divine, that makes sense, right? God does what he wants. Most people would acknowledge that. Even those who aren't Christians would say, yeah, if there is a God, he probably does whatever he wants. But verse 14 gives us pause because we don't expect God to look like this. It says, many were appalled at him, his appearance so disfigured beyond that of any man. Now, there's a bit of irony in this passage. Jesus, the divine servant who is highly exalted, is actually disfigured. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 6, when he got the vision of the heavenly throne room, even the angels could not look at God. So the description given there is they had wings to fly, they couldn't stand in his presence, wings to cover their feet, and wings to shield their eyes. They couldn't stand to look at his majesty. And in an ironic twist, Jesus, God in the flesh, as human beings, we couldn't stand to look at him. But it's important to notice that our perception of Jesus is not always reality. We might be appalled, were we there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we might be appalled to look at his physical appearance, 
But to look at Jesus is to see the exact image of God. God's character is on perfect display in this one that we view as disfigured. And the result is that nations will see and understand. That's been kind of a theme throughout the book of Isaiah is that those who see don't understand. The ones who have knowledge of God don't really understand who he is. And yet the nations will see and understand. So again, everything is getting turned on its head. The one who is highly exalted is humiliated before human beings. And the nations that have never heard about God are going to understand who God really is. So this success is going to be beyond our comprehension. And that takes us into the next stanza, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is skeptical. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's understandable that Isaiah would be skeptical, right? Our common conceptions of who God is don't compute with a suffering servant, one who's disfigured that people can't stand to look at. It says this man is a man of sorrows who has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Because of sin, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but because of sin, our perception of God is twisted. We tend to think of God as only high and exalted and only pure and only holy and all of these things. And that's true, but the character of God is much deeper than that. And Isaiah is coming to grips with that bit by bit. But he gives us an illustration as well. He talks about plants who grow up out of dry ground. It's kind of fitting for uh, the group to be in Israel. My wife and I had the privilege of going several years ago. And uh, down by the Dead Sea, which is pretty dry, it's desert down there, uh, there's a fortress on top of a mountain. And so you have the option, you can either take the air-conditioned tram to get up to the top of the mountain, or you can be dumb like me and walk the mile up the snake trail all the way to the top. But I noticed as we were walking through this desert path that there are flowers that grow out of this dry ground, out of this desert mountain. And that doesn't really compute, right? We think you need rich soil and fertilization and water for plants to grow. And that's the image that Isaiah is drawing here. He says, just like it doesn't compute for us that, our, that plants would grow out of dry ground, so this servant's success is not going to make sense to us. He's not going to succeed in a way that we would have predicted. He's going to succeed in a different way. And this should be uh, familiar with us because... In 1 Samuel, as uh, the Lord sends Samuel to choose a king for Israel, he says the Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's really what's going on here. The servant doesn't look good to us. If we were there to see Jesus hanging on a bloody cross, that wouldn't look so good to us. And yet that's exactly what needed to happen. And it's not just that we would be indifferent towards him. It's not just that we would disagree with God's method. It's that we would 
hate him. Notice the repetition in verse 3. He was despised and rejected. And at the very end, he was despised. Whenever you see a repetition like that in Scripture, he's drawing an emphasis. The author wants us to notice this, that it's not just that we didn't really care for his tactics, but that we hated Jesus. Apart from the gift of the Spirit, we all would have hated Jesus. And this is contrary to our understanding of success, right? I've, I've described that that's the theme of this passage. When we think of success, we think you need to have some measure of popularity. You need to be winsome and attractive, maybe culturally relevant so that people are drawn to you. And the more people that come, the bigger the crowd. That's ten, that usually is what we think of as success. But that's not success in God's eyes. And the fact that Jesus didn't come as we expected him to reveals why he needed to come in the first place. Isaiah gives us a hint at the end of verse 3. He says, we esteemed him not. So it's, it's no longer what other people viewed Jesus as. It's what we viewed him as. And it's because of our indifference and our apathy and our hatreds towards God that he needed to come in the first place. That leads us to our third stanza, beginning in verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now if you think of this song in five stanzas, this is the third stanza. This is the very center. He's drawing our attention to this passage. And this is where we see the great twist, which is the success of the servant has to come through suffering. Because our main problem, and as we've talked a little bit in the book of Job, our main problem is not suffering. Our main problem is sin. We often think, uh, as we adopt worldly tendencies from time to time, we think that our problems are mainly outside of us. It's my boss or my spouse or my kids or my house that is broken and my car that won't start. And these are my problems. And the Bible paints a very different picture of our problems. Our main problem is within. It has nothing to do with circumstances or upbringing or even the suffering itself. Our main problem is in our hearts that we have sinned against God. And the solution is not to be found by looking within. The world often says that. Your problems are out there. It's your circumstances, your upbringing, your suffering. And so you need to look deep within to find the solution, to find salvation, as it were. The Bible turns that on its head and says your main issue is your own heart. It's within us. It's our sin that dwells so deep. And the solution is out there. It's God coming to us, this servant suffering for us that's going to be the solution. And sin, which we're all guilty of, demands punishment and retribution. 
We have a sense of justice, everyone, whether you're Christian or not. We all have some sort of sense of justice. That's what the Me Too movement, if you follow any of that, that's what that's about. It's about seeking justice for people who have been sexually assaulted. But justice in God's eyes goes far beyond that. All of the hidden things that we think, well, it's just a little thing. It's not really a big deal. Our self-righteousness, our pride, our lustful thoughts, the gossip that we engage in regularly, our dislike or distaste for fellow human beings, the lies we tell to save face, and most of all, our apathy towards God and his purposes. All of that must be punished. God is a just God, and he will repay all those people that we think won't get justice in this life. They'll get justice, but so will everyone else. And God's standard is much higher than ours. And so we see in this passage that sin is not abstract. It's not just a a theological concept that needs to be addressed. It's personal. It's concrete. It's our everyday experience. And notice the first person in this passage. He, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Those are the effects of sin. The fact that we experience suffering It may not be a one-to-one correlation. It's not as though every bit of suffering we experience is directly related to a sin we've committed. But as sinners, we've contributed to a world of suffering. So there is suffering in the world because of sin, and we are guilty of sin. Our sin must be punished. And I fear that as Christians, we have a tendency towards moral superiority. Uh, Like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, those sinners. I do good things. I fear that even subconsciously that's the attitude we tend to adopt. As we look at people on the other side of the political aisle, as we look at people in our lives who don't know Christ, we look at them and we say, those people are sinners. They're going to get what they deserve. Instead, we should be like the tax collector in the same parable who said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus even testifies that the tax collector is the one who's justified before God and not the Pharisee. So Jesus suffered for our sins. But his suffering was not an end in itself. It was a means to his greater success. Notice in in verse 5, he brought us peace and he has healed us. See, Jesus never sinned. That's why he was uniquely able to suffer for us. As one commentator said, only innocent suffering can atone for guilty suffering. That means Jesus didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve the wrath of God that was placed on him. And yet he willingly chose to do that for our sake. See, the worst part of our existence is not suffering, but sin. Like I said in the beginning, things are not always the way they seem. Sin can bring a momentary sense of pleasure. So it seems on the surface that sin is really not that bad, right? It's, it's really okay, right? Just a little white lie here, uh, just a little gossip over there. It's not really a big deal. And when we come to suffering, we sense that it's all pain and it's the worst. But in reality, suffering, or in reality, sin is what separates us from God and that is the worst evil, But suffering, in reality, can bring us closer to God, which is our greatest good. 
Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, said an ounce of sin can harm us more than a ton of suffering. Sin can harden our hearts so that we lose everything. But suffering, if handled rightly, can make us wiser, happier, and deeper. And so Jesus' suffering achieves for us what we needed most. We didn't most need for him to remove our circumstances and remove our suffering. We needed him to remove the guilt and the punishment for our sin. And that's exactly what he did. Things aren't always as they seem. What we needed was not what we expected to need. And yet Jesus knows our needs beyond what we can even comprehend. And so again, if Jesus' suffering, the most unjust, horrific suffering that anyone has ever experienced, could achieve so great a success as the salvation of sinners, then certainly your suffering and my suffering is capable of achieving something too. Again, we can't always see it. And that's why Paul said we have to look to what is unseen, not to what is seen. Because to look to what is seen is just to see an ugly mess. We see the ugly mess in our lives, the suffering that we endure day to day. Uh, to, to look to what is seen is to see a bloody corpse condemned on a cross. And yet God tells us that what was really going on was victory. It wasn't defeat. And the same is true of our suffering. It's not always defeat. The eternal success that Jesus achieved in atoning for our sins mattered. And so our suffering matters as well. But it's not just that Jesus suffered, it's also the way he suffered. Fourth stanza, beginning in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as his sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That makes us think of Jesus' own trials, doesn't it? You see him standing there before the Sanhedrin, before Pontius Pilate. We have to ask ourselves a question as we approach those passages in the gospel. Who had the power in that scenario? Was it the person with the last word in the argument? Was it the person who condemned and ordered the execution? God testifies that Jesus had the power. Even in that, what appeared to be the worst of times, Jesus had the power. He chose to endure that suffering and he didn't open his mouth. Things are not always as they seem. Jesus was bound and beaten and crucified as we just celebrated his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Who had the real power? Was it the soldiers who inflicted the terrible pain and the torture? God says Jesus had the power, even in that suffering. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God. Who had the real power? Was it Satan and his minions? Had they finally won? He's hanging there helpless. Certainly that was the moment of defeat. And yet as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, that was the way that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and his minions. 
It says he even made a public spectacle of them. Our senses wouldn't tell us that. What our eyes see and what our minds often comprehend, they wouldn't tell us that the cross was the moment of victory. And yet that's exactly what it was. The way Jesus suffered mattered. And it does provide us an example to follow. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle tells us, it is commendable if a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure, that is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So as we think about the meaning of Jesus' suffering, the way he suffered mattered, that he didn't open his mouth, he didn't retaliate, and he was suffering unjustly. If anyone ever suffered unjustly, it was Jesus. How do we endure suffering in our lives? Do we endure it so humbly, so patiently? Do we trust that God is going to commend us for the way that we endure our suffering? Or when people insult us, do we retaliate? When we suffer, do we issue threats back on those who have inflicted pain on us? The way Jesus suffered mattered, and the way we suffer matters. But if we suffer in the way that he suffered, we can be confident that our suffering is meaningful as well. And finally, we see this passage bookended by victory, the final stanza. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Prosperity, success. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life, the resurrection. Suffering wasn't the end for Jesus, nor is it the end for us if we're truly his followers. You will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Success. You and I can be justified before God. We know the guilt of our sin. Hopefully here, if you're a committed Christian, you know that you're guilty of sin. And apart from Christ, you stand condemned before God. But because of Christ, you now stand right with God, fully confident that he's going to welcome you into his presence. That's the confidence we have because of what Jesus suffered for us. He bore our iniquities. Therefore, verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great. He is highly exalted and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This passage is all about success, isn't it? It's totally opposite the way that we think of success. We think of success in very worldly terms. But for Jesus, the way down was the way up. 
To be humbled to the point of death on a cross is the way to be exalted and given the name above every name. Do we view him that way? And do we view our own suffering in that way? His success came in a way that none of us would expect. You and I wouldn't plan things that way because as Isaiah will say in just a couple of chapters, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His vision for success is not our vision for success. He knows what really needs to happen in our lives. And sometimes suffering is the means through which that success is accomplished. But Jesus' suffering achieved a great victory, the salvation of sinners. So this morning, if you're here and you're suffering, or if you're here and you're going to suffer, that kind of accounts for everyone, Jesus cares about your suffering, so much so that he endured even greater suffering for your sake, so that your greatest problem could be solved and you could be right with God. As we've celebrated communion today, we remember that his body was broken for us. Jesus' success isn't an individual feat. It's a corporate success. You and I benefit from Jesus' success on the cross. His blood was shed for us. He suffered for us, and his success is for us. I've been thinking this week about a song. Uh, We don't sing too often, but the language is derived directly from this passage, and you see this dynamic of suffering and success in tension in every verse of this song. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. The man of sorrows, yet he was the Son of God. But the next line, ruin sinners to reclaim. We had no hope, and God gave us hope. He reclaimed us for his own, a great success. And the refrain is, hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He endured suffering for us, and yet it achieved a great success. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, the greatest success. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished. That's usually the cry of defeat. It's over. It is finished was his cry. But now he's in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And the promised future success. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the success that Jesus achieved for us. We were guilty and vile and helpless, and yet you knew exactly what needed to happen to secure our eternal salvation. God, we praise you and we are a grateful people this morning because nothing we could have done could earn so great a salvation, and yet Jesus is the Savior we need. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who hasn't understood the gravity of their sin or the gravity of the sacrifice necessary to pay for it, 
that they would see that this morning. What their eyes can't see and their minds can't comprehend, I pray that they would see by faith this morning. And for those who in the path of obedience are suffering, I pray that they would see what is unseen, the meaning in their suffering, knowing that Jesus accomplished a great meaning through his suffering. Be with us now in the remainder of our time of worship. In Christ's name, amen.